I've enjoyed, like you have, um, this study of the parables. We're going to conclude that today. I've talked to you in the past about the curse of knowledge, which is our inability to learn something once we think we already know it, because it keeps us outside of that thing forever. We lose a sense of wonder, a sense of intrigue. We lose a sense of surprise once we think we know something. And when it can't surprise us, and when we aren't wondered at it anymore, then we can't really learn anything deeper. So I kept reminding myself as I heard the parables of Jesus. Remember, Steve, Jesus was not only a good storyteller, he was also really, really smart. So there are probably layers of meaning to these stories that you think you know. Keep looking for another layer. As I heard again the parable of the sower, I learned that posture is everything. As I heard the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I learned that the longer I am a Christian, the harder it is to stay Christian because Christianity revolves around need, my need for grace. When I heard again the parable of the mustard seed, I was reminded of how powerful small things and small people are. When I heard the parable of the bridesmaids, it told me I was not going to judgment day. I was going to a wedding. When I heard the parable of the sheep and goats, I learned that compassion is not something Christians do. Compassion is at the heart of Christianity. When I heard the workers in the vineyard, I learned that God is generous and that I probably already have everything that he wants me to have. And when I heard the parable of the friend at midnight, it reminded me that God is a friend and a father and the most important part of my prayer is before I ever close my eyes how I perceive of the God that I pray to and when I heard Logan last week talk about the parable of the wheat and the weeds I learned that we ought to be the most tolerant people on the face of the earth but so often I thought We are not tolerant because we are religious. And religious people are notoriously intolerant because they consistently see intolerance as a badge of their devotion. But I heard last week that the real tolerant, the real grace-filled people can live next to weeds without having to take control of the entire field. And that the only time I take control is when I am weak, not strong. Boy, that was a good word for me. Now this week I come across this parable, these two parables really, of two guys that are looking for something and when they find it, they sell everything they have and they give to it. Some years ago, Wilbur Reese wrote with a tone of sarcasm, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. (laughs) Not enough to explode my soul, disturb my peace, no, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. 
I don't want enough of him to make me love a black person or to pick beets with a migrant worker. No, no, I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I want $3 worth of God. The parables today cut across that mentality that is so prevalent in our world, in our culture, in our country. It's the easy does it mentality. I think there are at least a couple reasons for this. One of those is that we have become more and more afraid of religious extremism. Starting with the tragedies of September 11, 15 years ago, being safe in our culture has become an obsession. And since we are no longer able to discern the difference between doctrines, and since we don't really want to be critical of anyone else's doctrine, we've come to believe that what is the most dangerous thing is not one's doctrine, but the passion with which they believe it. What I'm telling you is, it's no longer the veracity, the truthfulness, of someone's beliefs, whether or not they fit with reality. What is being questioned today is the intensity with which one believes anything. For if we believe anything to the nth degree, we are then radical or extreme. We are to be feared, and what is at risk is the more perfect union. I was surprised just a couple of weeks ago to read that some of the practices that seem traditional to the Christian faith, really to any faith, are more and more being seen as a form of extreme. When David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons did their research on the American culture today, they asked people a list of questions, a list of practices, and says, when someone does these things, do you consider that to be an act of extremism? For instance, if someone goes out and tries to persuade another person to come over to their religion, 60% of the U.S. public, that's adults, believe that's an act of extremism. When someone quits a good-paying job in order to pursue work in either ministry or mission fields, 42% of the public now say that is an act of extremism. When someone resists a policy from the government because they say it encroaches on their faith, 51%, more than half of the public now says that's an act of extremism. What is shocking is that these things were consistently encouraged as we were growing up. They are now seen as an act of extremism. Kinnaman writes, as culture, we are trying to figure out how to make sense of the widening religious and ideological differences, and by default, the middle seems to be winning. Many people are gravitating to a contrived, centrist position that says everything will be okay if none of us holds too tightly or to any particular belief. And ironically, this contrived center is itself becoming an ideology. And as people grip it more and more tightly, and they call the people tugging on the ends extreme. That's the first challenge. 
The second challenge is the paradox of choice. We live in a culture where we have way more options than we had before. And so what it creates is less commitment to any one of those choices because we have to turn our back on things that we don't want in order to pursue the one thing we do want. And when you have so many choices, the cost of turning your back on anything is higher. And so, the paradox is, the more choices you have, the less you commit to any of them. These are the two things, I think, that make it hard for us to hear how radical of a message this last parable is. Because the parable calls for us to be extreme, not only in what we will do for our religion, but in what we will give for it. These parables encourage an obsession with one thing to the exclusion of all other things. So it cuts against the grain of multiple choices. There are two of them. In one of them, a man is out wandering in the field. It's a cow pasture. And he comes across a treasure. It's half buried, let's say. He opens the treasure and looks into it, and the moment he looks into it, he knows in a second he has hit the lotto, except he doesn't own the land. So he puts it back in the hole, and then he goes home, and he takes everything that he has, puts it together, comes to the landowner, and makes him an offer. Landowner sells him the cow pasture. Now, I know that you know the parable, but enter it for a moment and imagine the conversation the man had with his family when he went home. Guess what? I bought a cow pasture. I bet that went really well. Imagine he tells his friends, I have just hit the jackpot. What did you do? I bought a cow pasture. You should see this. It's amazing. Now, don't be surprised if they're not real excited about this. But the key is that the man who found the treasure knows something about the field that his family and his friends don't know. To them, it's just a cow pasture. To him, it's just an empty field surrounding the treasure. So he's willing to buy the entire field that he might have the treasure. One assumes that if his family and friends had seen the treasure, they would have changed their mind. Even so, the kingdom says, Jesus, it will seem like that to you. You You will buy all kinds of things. You'll give up all kinds of things to have the one thing you stumble into. It's so valuable. And the moment you see it, you'll know that it's priceless. And you can't expect for your friends and your family to buy into your purchase. But you know something that they don't know. You have found the treasure of the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom comes. Second person isn't stumbling. He's probably a gem broker. He may have a pocket full of pearls. He's on search for pearls. And then he finds one that's more valuable than anyone he's found before. And the moment he sees it, he knows in an instant it's worth more than anything he's ever had before and so he goes back and he takes everything that he has all the pearls in his pocket all the jewelry that he's trying to deal and he puts it together with everything else and he pays 
the asking price for the pearl. There's a couple things you might want to know about first century economics that I think come into play here. One of them is, this will surprise you, but that there was not a great deal of regulation in prices. Now, don't be surprised. I mean, what I'm saying is the government didn't regulate the prices back in those days. So there wasn't necessarily an asking price. When you had a piece of property, you didn't put it on Zillow. I know you're surprised, but you didn't list it. So typically, if you saw a piece of property that you wanted, you didn't know what the price was because there often wasn't an asking price you had to make an offer that would incentivize the sale. You had to find a number big enough that when the owner of the property saw it, he would say, I want the money more than I want the land. You had to motivate them. Are you tracking? The second thing you should know is that uh, currency was not as common as it is today. There was currency, to be sure. But for purchases this large, you didn't often pay money, you traded. So when the parable says that he went back and he took everything, it means he took everything. It it doesn't mean he gave him all of his money, because you didn't always pay for purchases this big with money. You took your possessions the property you owned, the livestock you owned, the crops that you got, the services that you could provide. In some cases, people indentured themselves to pay off debts. You took literally everything you had and you gave it for the thing that you want. And so it wasn't so much a purchase as it was a trade-off. You were trading what you had, everything, for the one thing you wanted. This, says Jesus, is how the kingdom comes. Now, before you get into the parables, there's a couple of other things you might want to know. One of them is, in every economy, the cost of something is relative to the value. And the value is relative to the cost. So the cost of something is whatever you're willing to pay for it. And the value is whatever you think it's worth. Are you tracking? So a good deal is when the value exceeds the cost. Paid a little bit and you got a really big return. A bad deal is when the cost is greater than the value. Just last week, my son on his way to Indy saw a flea market, stopped, walked in, and the guy was selling football cards. Now, see, some of you, you don't dig it. It's a value thing, I'm telling you. So he comes home with about 10, 15 sleeves of football cards. And he's got them on the table and he's leafing through them when I come home and his eyes are on fire. And he's got cards, lots of them, but he's loving these. And I said, what, what, what'd you do? 
He said, guy said he's been collecting them since he was a kid and he didn't want them anymore. So he's anxious to get rid of them. I paid 60 bucks for about 150, 200 cards. That a good deal? I said, let me see. And when I leaf through them, he's got four or five Fran Tarkentons. He's got some Gale Sayers. He's got some mean Joe Greens. He's got some Marcus Allens. And I'm like, man, you scored big time. His mother was not quite so sure. So he went online and he started looking up the cards. And in order to justify the purchase... He would say, well, Mom, this one's worth 12, this one's worth 10, this one's worth 15, this one's worth 8. And by the time he'd equaled about $60, his mother breathed the sigh of relief. And then I said, just to put a damper on it, I said, no, actually, they're only worth what somebody will give you for them. She went, oh. <laughs> we have different value systems, his mother and I. Now, she may be right. She's thinking the value of something like a football card is only what you can get in return for money. Whenever somebody offers you money for a card, you always take the money. His daddy don't think that way. When I looked at the cards, I said, for 60 bucks, you have just bought into an entire generation of football players that you'll never see. You should hold on to these things. Don't sell them. His mother thought I was crazy. It's a value system, isn't it? What you're willing to pay determines what you value. And when you value it, you'll pay for it. And because you paid for it, you'll value it more. Why are we talking about this? Because if you want to know what people value, watch what they pay for. This is not economic theory. The point of the parable is you already are paying for what you value. All of you. Me too. And the way we know this is to back up and count the cost. If we follow your money, if we follow the hours of time, if we follow what happens to friendships, if we track the sacrifices, we will know that everything we have, whether it's possessions or whether it's academic degrees or whether it's positions in an organization or whether it's certificates of achievement on our walls, every achievement, everything we have has come at a cost. And we sometimes don't see the cost because we value it so greatly. And we think to ourselves, anyone with their head on straight would pay that, like 60 bucks for football cards. 
But there are other people with different value systems who are this morning purchasing other things with their sweat and with their sacrifices and with their hours of study and with their money and with the changes that we've made in our lives. If you want to know what you value, study what you pay. So my question this morning, or the first one, is what have you been paying for? Because Jesus' parable is not spoken to people with no value system. It's spoken to people who have a value system. And he's calling us to change it. Because if you can change the value system, you can change what people will pay. If you can get them interested in that value system, they'll pay it gladly and think it was a good deal. Now to the parables. Two parables told slightly differently say about the same thing. One, somebody is out wandering around or they are out searching and they found something. Two, the moment they find it, they know what it's worth. Nobody's guessing. They have the right appraisal. When I see the treasure, when I see the pearl, I know in an instant, I ain't never seen anything like this before. Three, once they have the right appraisal, they gladly go back and gather all of their belongings. Everything means everything. And four, when they buy it, they think they got a good deal. And neither of them walking away thinking to themselves, boy, I had to sacrifice to get that. Both of them are walking away thinking, that was a steal. <laughs> now, how on earth can someone pay everything they have and think they got a good deal? Because they know the value of the thing they bought. The message of the parable is that the kingdom of God is expensive. It is not cheap and it is not free. You and I grew up in a church that emphasized so heavily the free gift of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of your works. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 6, 23. But Robert Shank talks about what he calls the high cost of a free gift. His point is that while salvation is a gift, it is not free. 
What makes it a gift is that what you get out of it is worth way more than what you put into it. But it is not free. And it is not cheap. It is expensive. Jesus said, the price of the kingdom of God is humility. The price of being comforted is you have to learn to mourn. The price of being filled is that you have to stay hungry. Yeah, the price of seeing God is that you have to be pure in heart. The price of being at peace is that you have to forgive your enemies. The price of being rich is that you have to be generous. You see it? Every one of these things that we want to be called comes with a price. And so Jesus' first point in these two parables is that the kingdom of God is not cheap and the kingdom of God is not free. It comes at an expense. But hang on, hang on. It's always worth way more than you paid. Always worth more than you pay. So if the price of humility seems high for you, look at the price of pride. If it seems hard for you to forgive your enemies, try not forgiving them for a year and look at the price that you pay. If it seems hard to stay hungry and restless for more of God, look at the price of being too easily satisfied And if it seems expensive to give away all that you have, look at the price of trying to hold on to it. Do we not see that we are already paying for something? And so much of the time, even for good Christians, what we pay for is overrated. Jesus' point is the kingdom of God is expensive. It will cost you everything but you'll never pay too much. You'll never pay too much because you will always get out of it more than you put into it. So the message, I think, is speaking to a few of us. I think this morning there are people at every stage along the way, isn't there? I think there are people here that... um, this is kind of brand new for you. Maybe you're, maybe you're Christian, been Christian for a long time, but just recently you're starting to like investigate this kingdom stuff. And the kingdom, I think you're starting to see that the kingdom of God does not mean necessarily heaven. It's more than heaven. You're starting to see that the kingdom of God is a way of life. It's a value system. It's a way of seeing the world. And you're intrigued by this. There really are people who live by this Sermon on the Mount stuff. And you're watching this and you're studying this, but you're not sure that you're all in. My advice to you is, don't jump yet. Don't pay for it yet. 
Study it. Watch it. Stay around people who live according to the kingdom. And you know what will happen? One day you'll stumble on something like a treasure. And when you find it, you'll pay it gladly. No one will have to talk you into it. You'll say, I don't have anything that's more valuable than this. Here it is. I'll give up literally anything to get that. And that may come piece by piece for you. Because the truth is, you probably on this day already have as much of the kingdom as you truly, truly value. For that's what you've already bought, nothing more. So I would advise you simply to continue leaning into it, be around people who are growing and thriving in the kingdom of God. And on that day when you know the Lord says, man, do you want that? You'll pay it. Just wait. I'm not going to push you. Some of you are disappointed. You're revivalistic. You're Westlands. There's another category, though, and I think there's people here this morning And you do know the price, and you do know what he's offering you. And you're not sure at this point. Now you're stuck. Some of you are thinking, you know, I had a job, and now the Lord seems to be saying, I want you to be open to a larger, greater ministry than you have had before. But if you do this, you know it's going to cost you something, and you can already tally it. Some of you maybe are being called out of certain circles or away from certain practices or things and the cost of leaving those things behind seems to you really, really high. You don't need to investigate anymore. You already know. I do want to push you. (laughs) I do. If I could, I'd get behind you right now and shove you right off the ledge. I would. Because there are people, I'm one of them, who know every time I thought I was losing something, I got something more. And if I could just get you to make that jump, I believe you would fall into a life that was way bigger than the current one you had. You think you're happy now? Wait. So I want to encourage you to go full bore toward the thing that you know God is asking you to do this morning and you're afraid of it. Do it. Do it. And your life will get bigger. It'll cost you. But it's worth way more than you'll pay. There's the last category, I think, and there are so many of them in our church this morning. These are those who have paid and are consistently paying the price. And they're loving their life. It's, it's, I don't have to talk you guys into anything. You're sitting there a whole time thinking, man, dude, you've been boring me because this is exactly what I have been living my entire life. So when you read the Beatitudes, you're not reading them as you should be poor in spirit. <laughs> you read it as I own the kingdom. I am the children of God. I do see God. I am filled because you are always paying the price and you are always getting the reward. So I want you to know our church is full of those people, deep, rich lives, people who have given everything and have way, way more in response. And I hope this morning some of you that God is prompting will join them.